Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On June 1st, 2017, President Donald Trump announced that the United States would be pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, claiming that it would undermine the U.S. economy and put the U.S. at a permanent disadvantage. One year later, what are the actual effects of this decision, and what is the status of global climate diplomacy? To answer these and related questions, I'm joined today by one of the key U.S. leaders on climate diplomacy. Todd Stern is a senior fellow with the Cross Brookings Initiative on Energy and Climate. He served from January 2009 until April 2016 as the Special Envoy for Climate Change at the Department of State and was President Obama's chief climate negotiator. Also in today's show, David Wessel addresses rising housing prices and who is being left behind in his economic update. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Todd, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks so much, Fred. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here, but I'm sorry it's on a not great anniversary. You were the Obama administration's chief negotiator for the Paris Climate Agreement, which was adopted by all but two countries on Earth in December 2015. Uh, And one year ago, President Trump pulled the U.S. out. Can you talk about the range of your feelings from when it was signed to last summer. So first of all, I want to just uh, make sure we clarify one thing for uh, all of our listeners, which is the the president announced his intention to pull the United States out uh, based on the way the agreement was actually uh, set up, the the, the provision for withdrawal on the agreement. U.S. cannot submit its official notice of intent to withdraw uh, until November of 2019, and then that has to lay over for a year. So what that translates into is U.S. can't actually get out until November 2020, but there's no question the president announced his intent to do that. Um, as to the range of my <laughs> of my feelings about it, look, I, uh, I was... Um, I, obviously, I anticipated uh, what was coming, uh, at least what might be coming for some time leading up to it, since there had been a lot of discussion about that. Uh, I think watching the event, which I did uh, for the Rose Garden speech, uh, I was uh, pretty angry, uh, not surprised, but angry at, uh, at what I saw. Uh, but I think it is uh, sort of part of my... Uh, Uh, sort of personality makeup that I don't tend to dwell on those things too much. I don't wallow around in being uh, in being uh, upset or uh, distressed. I more try to try to uh, switch pretty quickly into uh, okay, what do we do now? And and on that day, as as a matter of fact, I had an op-ed ready to go in the Washington Post, which ran the next morning, uh, explaining why this was such a uh, wrong-headed and Ill- ill-advised decision. So, uh, And ever since that time, I have been working in various ways to try to deal with what we do now. I'd like to take our listeners back just uh, to explain what the Paris Agreement actually is. And then I want to go back to this very important question of what do we do now. Uh, can you talk about what it took to arrive at the agreement in December 2015 and just briefly sketch out what it is? Well, sure. Um, the in some ways, the Paris Agreement was uh, seven years in the making. I mean, it was literally four years in the making. There was an agreement. You know, there was a there's a big climate change conference of all the countries in the world at the so-called ministerial level, and for these purposes, I was the United States minister. Um, so there's one of those meetings at the end of every year. It's called a COP conference of the for the conference of the parties, uh, and um, 
in the COP of 2011 in South Africa, there was a mandate agreed to uh, to negotiate a new uh, agreement uh, over a four-year period that would take us to 2015. And in pretty short order, I think not right then, but in pretty short order after that, the French made clear that they were prepared to host that meeting. So that's, that's what became Paris. So it was officially a four-year negotiation. But really, it goes. I would say it goes back to the time that President Obama came in to office. I came with him, uh, and um, we started working on uh, the 2009 uh, edition of that of that big meeting, and uh, which ended up in Copenhagen, a very difficult meeting. A lot of people thought it was a big failure. Actually, planted a lot of seeds that uh, that found their way into Paris. Um, broadly speaking, what does Paris do? It uh, it first of all it includes all the countries in the world, uh, which is different from previous climate change uh, agreements. Includes them in the sense that all of them are going to participate. All of them are going to take action. Uh, it lays out certain uh, goals uh, that that are intended to guide what we're doing uh, with respect to uh, containing climate change. And the most important of those goals is to limit the rise of global temperature to uh, well below two degrees centigrade, uh, which will be a trick. We're already at, uh, at an increase of about one degree since the roughly the pre-industrial times. Um, so it, it, it sets out a guiding goal. It, uh, it includes uh, uh, a variety of measures to sort of prod countries to act in a strong or, to use the lingo of these negotiations, ambitious uh, way, which include, for example, every five years, countries put forward their own nationally determined targets. That by itself is also another innovation of this agreement. Uh, it's not a, a, a negotiation between countries where everybody has to sign off on everybody else's target. It's nationally determined, which was critical for getting all countries to, to participate. And there are uh, cycles every five years to review those uh, with the intent to, uh, to push them up, to, you know, to re-up them, you know, kind of onward and upward. Mm -hmm. um, there are strong provisions uh, on transparency. So everybody can see what everybody else is doing. Very important. Countries report on their uh, inventories of, uh, of emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and report on their action uh, toward uh, re realizing, toward meeting their targets. Um, so uh, that, and again, that applies to everybody. Uh, the agreement is, uh, has a suppler, uh, a more, uh, uh, kind of a less absolute means of differentiating between countries. One of the bugaboos of climate negotiations going back 25 years uh, has been the, the kind of very, sharp divide, a sort of firewall between what developed countries do on the one hand and developing countries do on the other, no matter how big and advanced those developing countries are, like China and others. And there is still uh, differentiation in some uh, respects, which, which is appropriate, but it's a much sort of softer kind of differentiation. The nationally determined nature of targets is a, is a good example of that. Instead of everybody on one side does X and everybody on the other side does Y, countries are making their own decisions. So you have a whole spectrum of differentiation across, uh, across um, different countries. And there are other elements of the agreement that take a softer approach to that issue. And it's all, there's also still another innovation of the agreement is it's a kind of a legal 
hybrid in terms of its legal character. It, 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 some very important elements are not legally binding, including country targets. And, um, and they're not legally binding for a very good reason. The countries wouldn't have agreed to that. And indeed, if somehow they would have agreed to it, it would have uh, it ended up driving the uh, ambition of countries downward because countries would have been nervous about, well, what happens if I have this legal commitment and I, and I, and I don't quite uh, meet up to it. But on the other hand, accountability elements, those transparency, uh, that transparency provision that I was just describing, that is legally binding because we need to be able to see what people are doing. So there's, there's a whole lot of elements uh, the, the core of it is countries are supposed to be working to reduce their emissions, doing that on a nationally de determined basis, uh, on re-upping re on cycles that are determined in the agreement. Uh, and then there are other important provisions, financial assistance of very poor countries, um, provisions for uh, what's called adaptation in this business, which is the, the, where, where countries uh, build resi re resilience uh, against the impacts of climate change, which are already happening. So a number of elements, but, uh, but also very importantly, a number of really innovative elements that made this possible. So notwithstanding uh, President Trump's announcement a year ago, and then what you said about uh, the, the U.S. is still in the agreement uh, until at least 2020, uh, the, the agreement is still in effect then, even with or without the United States. Is that the agreement is at? absolutely in effect? Um, the agreement uh, took effect uh, very early for an agreement like this, uh, with in in 2016. So less than a year after the agreement was was initially agreed to in Paris, it had entered into force. That's kind of unheard of, and it wasn't an accident. Um, we in the United States. Um, with President Obama's leadership and Secretary Kerry at, uh, at the State Department, uh, worked with countries, pushed countries to try to get this done uh, straight away, right up. Um, mm -hmm. There had been uh, participation from leaders all over the world. We, of course, had a very important and, uh, I think, powerful collaboration with China uh, during this whole period. Um, we agreed with China early on. It was the last thing that I negotiated <laughs> before leaving the State Department uh, in the spring of 2016. Uh, was an agreement with the Chinese that we were both going to uh, uh, sort of formally join the agreement, which is what needs to happen for entry into force. Uh, and that happened in many, many, many other countries. So it, it, it went into force. And, uh, and very much as I had predicted in various op-eds and such that I, uh, that I wrote about uh, this question of U.S. withdrawal, uh, I predicted and, and was uh, right about the fact that other countries would not walk away, and they have not walked away. And it's my understanding that uh, when the agreement was originally reached in Paris in 2015, two countries did not agree at the time. One was Syria, embroiled in a civil war. The other was El Salvador? No, Nicaragua. 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 And it didn't think that the uh, agreement was strong enough. But now I know Nicaragua has since joined the agreement. Is right. Syria in the agreement now? I believe so. I, I believe Syria recently uh, joined. So we so, have basically everybody except the U.S. leaning, leaning to leave. What uh, I mean, what would happen in the future if, after November 2020, the U.S. formally is out of the agreement? I mean, how important is U.S. leadership and participation in this global I, climate agreement? Look, I, I think it's critical. Uh, it was critical to reaching the agreement. I mean, virtually every one of those provisions that, that uh, I just walked through with you a minute ago uh, were provisions that uh, were 
arrived at through substantial U.S. leadership. In some cases, they were literally our ideas. In other cases, they were the ideas of another country, which we uh, thought were made sense. And we worked with countries all across the board, every, every, you know, every different category, all spectrums, big developing countries, small ones, islands, Latins, mm -hmm. uh, Africans, developed countries, all, all across the board. Uh, we were, obviously, it wasn't all, all up to us. We didn't do this single-handedly, but we were critically important. I think countries around the world saw that you had in the Obama administration from top to bottom a real commitment, uh, not just on getting the thing done internationally, but but we were we were we were walking the walk, uh, acting at home in very strong ways to uh, to to reduce our own emissions, and we you know and we put forward a very strong target. So in all sorts of ways, we had really built up, uh, thanks to uh, President Obama and Secretary, originally Secretary Clinton and then Kerry and and all the others who were part of the climate team, we'd built up a lot of credibility. And, uh, you know, I, I sometimes say, uh, in thinking about the experience that I had in the seven years that, uh, that I was there, uh, I, I go back to that famous comment by Madeleine Albright that the U.S. is the indispensable nation. And in my own experience, that was absolutely true. I mean, the U.S., people look to us. It's not that they sit around doing nothing if we're not there, but they really look to the United States for leadership. These issues are not simple. That's why it took so long to, to get a, a kind of operational uh, agreement that followed on the original, original treaty. It goes all the way back to 1992. Uh, these are tough issues, and, uh, and U.S. leadership was critical. You know, I think it's going to be, if the U.S. pulls out, it'll be very damaging. I, and I, I have been... Participating as much as I can from the sidelines in in uh, the discussions that are going on this year, this is actually a quite important year because uh, in a number of places there are implementing measures, guidelines, and such that that uh, that were agreed on to be negotiated to to essentially flesh out and follow on the Paris Agreement itself. Those are supposed to get done by the end of this year on a whole host of issues, including transparency and, and compliance and other things. And uh, I, in, in my you know, sort of observation, in, uh, spent several days at a big climate uh, meeting of negotiators just earlier in May, um, and, uh, and also went to the COP in, uh, in, uh, last year in, in November. And we're missed. I mean, we're missed a lot. And we're missed, and people are angry. People are angry. I mean, the United States was a big part of the reason why this agreement came out the way it came out. And you had, I think, any number of countries who sort of extended themselves a little bit outside their comfort zone, trying to accommodate uh, positions that we were putting forward. Uh, I think inspired by seeing that the United States and China were together. So China, you know, sort of the leader on the developing countries side, a lot of countries thought, well, if China's okay with this and the U.S. is pushing, we're going to swallow hard and, you know, and, and, and take this step. And then the U.S. walks away. So it's a difficult situation right now. I recall uh, that back in the earlier days of uh, the global climate negotiations, and maybe this was right after 92 that you referenced, I think Kyoto was one of the big uh, agreements then, that one of the, the, the worries or the, the sources of opposition that people in the United States had was, 
uh, well, we're not going to reduce our emissions if a, if a global polluter like China is not going to reduce its emissions, uh, and they're responsible for a lot more of it now. But then the developing world will say, yeah, but over the last 100 years, the United States, you and the developing countries have polluted a lot more. And, and those kinds of issues seem to be really at the fore then, but not so much now. Well, uh, they were they, they have been at the fore uh, since the climate discussions began in the early 1990s. Uh, they haven't gone away now, but, uh, but I think we found a way to manage them and to work more together than had been the case in the past during this, these discussions that led up to and included Paris. So, um, uh, but look, you're, you're absolutely right. We, uh, on the one hand, one can be quite sympathetic to the, to the perspective of developing countries who say, look, we didn't create this problem. We're trying to develop and grow and lift ourselves out of poverty. You guys didn't have to worry about this climate change stuff when you were developing. You could use coal or fossil fuel or anything else, and nobody was yelling at you. So now you're looking to us, and you're, you're you know, we don't want to have requirements imposed upon us that are going to interfere with our ability to develop and grow. I think you can be completely sympathetic with that, structure an agreement to, uh, to take that fully into account. Again, you think about what, what, what we agreed to do, nationally determined. That's the key on this, to this agreement with respect to targets, nationally determined. So by definition, we are not forcing you to do what you don't think you can do. And yet, here's the deal. Climate change is a really, really big problem. It is a metastasizing danger. And developing countries now account for well over 60% of global emissions, probably 60 on the way towards 65, et cetera, which is not because they're doing anything wrong. It's because they're developing. And, and mature economies are more mature, and we're using much more renewable and non-fossil energy. So you see, for example, the, the kind of iron link historically between economic growth and emissions growth has been broken in the United States. Over the last number of years, we have taken our emissions substantially down while our growth has gone substantially up. And that's where we have to go. But, uh, but in, its, in any event, sort of to get back to your question, yes, you can understand why developing countries have that perspective, but you can't f solve this problem uh, without getting everybody on board. And the politics of this thing are such, certainly in the United States, but I think also in other, in other countries, that the notion of saying this is all supposed to be done on the backs of, uh, of countries that account for 35% of global emissions, you just can't do that. And now, here's senior fellow David Wessel with his thoughts on the housing market. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. The bursting of the housing bubble in 2006 and 7 was one of the triggers for the worst recession in generations. Today, though conditions vary from place to place, the average house price has risen 50% since the housing market touched bottom in 2012. In most places, house prices are back to where they were before the bust, often a bit higher. That's great news for those of us who own houses, nearly two-thirds of American families, but not so good for folks eager to buy their first house. With house prices rising faster than wages, houses are increasingly unaffordable for many, particularly in the nation's hottest real estate markets. So who's being left out? 
Well, younger people, among others. Homeownership rates among the under-45 crowd have been falling for well over a decade, so they haven't benefited from the recent run-up in house prices. According to new data from the New York Federal Reserve Bank, people under 45 had 24% of the nation's housing wealth in 2006, but only 14% of the housing wealth today. And that has long-lasting implications because home equity can be an important way to build wealth, and owning a house makes it easier to borrow cheaply for other things. A recent St. Louis Fed report said that Americans born in the 80s are, quote, at substantial risk of accumulating less wealth over their lifespans than members of previous generations, close quote. So what's behind this trend? Actually, it's not completely clear. Surveys suggest that folks, including renters, still see houses as a good investment. But builders aren't building as many starter homes as they used to. Construction of new homes, particularly single-family homes, hasn't recovered from the recession. Also, some younger Americans are having trouble getting launched in the job market, which of course makes it harder to get a mortgage, and there's evidence suggesting that heavier student loan burdens are a factor. Even though the financial system has largely healed, getting a mortgage remains harder than it used to be. You have to have a better credit score to get a mortgage than you did 15 years ago. And now, on top of that, mortgage rates, which have been at rock-bottom levels for years, are rising. They're now at the highest level in seven years, likely to keep climbing. That's just one more obstacle. Now, all this may have political ramifications. In places, California, for instance, where housing prices are particularly strong and the number of renters is rising, there's more pressure for rent control. In Seattle, where house prices are soaring, the city has imposed a controversial tax on big employers to raise money to fight homelessness and build affordable housing. Around the country, there's increasing attention to zoning restrictions that constrain new building, particularly of apartment houses, and some pressure to change them, though actually not much action. And in another way, builders are complaining of labor shortages, and this could add to their resistance, business resistance, to President Trump's anti-immigration stance, since many construction workers are immigrants. One final thought. Even though housing prices are back to where they were before the housing bust, we are not back in housing bubble territory yet. Lenders are still more picky about who they lend to. Mortgage debt is rising, but not at a very fast pace. As a nation, we have a lot more home equity than we did five years ago, and people aren't using their houses as ATMs, getting home equity loans and the like, as much as they did in the bad old days. And in many places, prices are rising for houses because we aren't building enough of them to keep up with growing populations. That's supply and demand, not a bubble. A bubble is when prices move up faster than one can explain by the fundamentals of supply and demand. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. I want to uh, ask you to, to explain something that, I, that really struck me as super important. Uh, when I was doing the research for this and reading some of the things that you've written and said, and that's the role of norms in uh, propelling countries to to do this work, uh, to adopt their nationally determined targets. So we know there's not uh, there's no sanctions, um, there's no uh, you know you have to do it this way. It's uh, there's some role that norms are playing in the functioning of the Paris Agreement. Can you talk about what that means? Uh, yeah, and I think, uh, Fred, I think this is actually a really important uh, element. It's, it's something that I was thinking about a lot during the years that I was there, and I, in, 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 I tended to give a big speech or two every year, and I remember, I think it was 2013 at Chatham House, I gave a speech where I talked quite explicitly about uh, this particular issue. Look, people often and, and still 
particularly if they are kind of in the category of uh, sort of a little bit interested from the outside but not really sort of in the middle or, or tuned in uh, uh, closely to these negotiations, uh, people can easily look and say, well, but wait a minute, you, you, you're, the targets aren't legally binding, you know, so you, this doesn't really amount to anything, does it? I mean, what is this anyway? Um, why, didn't you, why didn't you do a binding agreement? Then that would that, that, have real teeth. That would be tough. Well, the, the, the reality, as I sort of alluded to before, is you couldn't get that kind of agreement done. Insofar as you are trying to deal with this problem through the, uh, through the full multilateral uh, setting in uh, the UN setting, 195 countries, which is what we should do if it's humanly possible. And if it turns out that that whole effort breaks down and you've got to try to work with a smaller number of big countries, well, then we'll have to get there. But that's really, really very much uh, less, uh, less attractive and less advantageous than having everybody on board because everybody is involved here. Everybody is, is, is both a part of, uh, of, the, um, of the problem of emissions. Some countries are a very small part, but they're growing. Uh, and people are vulnerable. Countries are vulnerable. So you want everybody uh, engaged. Uh, you can't. You can't get a binding agreement, a legally binding agreement, with everybody uh, involved. So the notion that that's the you know that's the way it'll be really tough. It won't be tough. And as I said before, if somehow you could wave a wand and get all those countries who say we're not doing that to say, well, okay, we'll do it. You're just going to drive down ambition. You're not going to drive it up. So. What Paris is really dependent on, in effect, is the, is the gradual development, uh, and, and I don't mean gradual in a slow sense. I, I, I would hope it's, uh, it's the, 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 the steady and strong development of norms and expectations where countries understand that they, their, their uh, international reputation, their, the way people look at them is going to be uh, based in part on whether they are stepping up to this big challenge, and uh, and that they there there will be a sense of uh, of countries goading each other, not in a binding way, but goading each other to do more, do better, and move us all in the direction that needs to happen. I you know another thing that I said in a recent speech I gave uh, is that. Uh, the, the sort of the, the essence of Paris was to try to find the sweet spot between the necessary and the possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, necessary is to deal with this problem. Possible is to not sit there and recite things that can't get done. Like, you know, you, you, in, in theory, you could, you could say, let's reverse engineer. We know how much we have to reduce by. We'll have a legally binding agreement. Everybody will be assigned this much reduction in order to be, well, it sounds great. Great on paper. Good, good research paper. Good, good paper for graduate school. You can't do it. So that's, what, that's why we, we built Paris the way we did. And, yes, it is dependent on the, on, on the uh, progressive development of norms and expectations. And if those don't work, we're going to have to end up doing something else. But, but that's, I, that's the only way we could see to do an, a multilateral agreement that brought everybody in. And, it, mm. it, and it, it can work. But again, having the United States as the biggest player in the world, the biggest historic uh, emitter, and just excuse me, just a world leader in general, having us step back and away 
is really very undermining. If the United States at a national level under the Trump administration is not going to participate in the Paris Agreement, what about what some U.S. states or other um, localities uh, are or can do to participate? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Fred, because that's a really good news story mm -hmm. in all of this. Um, so disappointing that, uh, that the Trump administration uh, indicated they want to pull out. But uh, virtually immediately uh, upon the president's June 1st uh, Rose Garden uh, speech, uh, there was a, uh, a large-scale mobilization at the sub-national level. So the first manifestation of that uh, was a movement called uh, We Are Still In, WASI. Uh, we Are Still In. And uh, it started off, I'd say, two or three days after that speech. There were already 1,500 or more entities that were part of that. Now I think there's something like 2,700 that includes states and cities and companies and universities and other institutions who have all raised their hand and said, we are still in, which means we are still, we are still in Paris. We are still committed to Paris. We are still going to take action, notwithstanding what uh, President Trump has said. Um, there has then been also all sorts of other uh, efforts and action. There is a sort of related uh, um, uh, effort called America's Pledge which is meant to not just say we are sort of still in, you know, as a matter of spirit, but actually here's what our own uh, commitments are. So we're a city and we're saying we're going to reduce our emissions by 15 percent by 2030, or we're a state and we say we're going to do X, Y, Z, or a company or, or, or uh, other entities. And America's Pledge is kind of collecting all of those, doing their best, and this isn't easy to kind of uh, figure out uh, the metrics that allow them to, to look and say, all right, based on this kind of action, where do we think we can get to by 2025, which was the date of, our, of the target that we took in the Obama administration? We, our target, uh, for the record, was a 26 to 28 percent reduction as compared to 2005 levels by 2025. So how, we're not going to get all the way there without the federal government playing a strong role, but how close can we get? How far, how, how much can we do? So there's that effort going on. There's a uh, U.S. Climate Alliance, which is made up of, uh, as I think it's 16 or 17 states, uh, maybe even a little bit more than that uh, since I looked last. There's hundreds of cities that are in a, uh, in a, a conference of mayors on climate change and on and on and on. And I, so I think this is very important for kind of two related reasons. One is to take as much action on the ground, reduce emissions as much as possible, to drive forward the transformation to clean energy, which is just, that's how their emissions come down. So that's the solution side of climate change, or the, or the biggest solution side. Um, that's very important. And the other thing that's important is to convey a message within the country that, uh, that despite President Trump, there is all sorts of dynamism and action going forward on climate change and to convey that same message to countries around the world. So the United States, America has not gone dark. There are pockets and not just small pockets, big pockets. California. Uh, yeah, California, New York, states all over the country and cities all over the country and companies all over the country. Uh, the, 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 we, it, I think in, in the neighborhood of 50% of our population are covered by these, what I'm referring to as pockets. So these are big pockets, and probably 35 or 40% of, 
of U.S. emissions are covered by this. So there's action. America has, America has not pulled back. The White House has pulled back. Let's talk for a few minutes about the climate change threat itself. You said a few minutes ago that it is metastasizing. What do you mean by that? Well, look, there are uh, uh, I, to 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 um, uh, to. Uh, I don't mean to quote. <laughs> I don't mean to quote the various non-believers who 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 preface their comments by saying I'm not a scientist. I am a believer. I am also not a scientist, but I am uh, quite familiar with what's going on. And there's uh, there is uh, there are demonstrations of uh, of the impacts of climate change uh, going on all over the world. For starters, the basic facts of a greenhouse effect and of uh, and of the fact that uh, that emissions are rising carbon is rising uh, dramatically in the atmosphere and that the rise of carbon increases temperature that is just absolutely undeniably factually true there are graphs that go back 400,000 years that show an, that show over time a lockstep move up or down uh, in temperature and carbon. So there isn't any doubt about that. There's all sorts of interesting research questions. Scientists are working on all over the world, but that stuff is just, that the, those basics are just true. So you, what, what do we see? We see rising temperature. It's about 1, 1, 1. 1 degrees centigrade uh, already. We see, uh, we see a huge, uh, uh, we see flooding all over the world. We see droughts all over the world. We see superstorms. Uh, all over the world, uh, we see uh, we see melting glaciers and disappearing ice in the Arctic. Uh, we see sea level rising at twice the rate that it that it rose even two or three decades ago, uh, and on and on. And uh, and if you, you, you we can be looking at, at in California, we can be looking at wildfires in the West. We can be looking at Superstorm Sandy. We can be looking at the hurricanes and. Uh, in Texas and uh, and uh, and Florida last year, we can be looking at, at at heat waves in India and Pakistan and Thailand. It's all over the world. Enormous floods in in Colombia and South America. Nobody is 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 escaping this. And uh, the, you you can look at the insurance industry's own mm -hmm. statistics that show. Uh, a dramatic increase in in mega events now as compared to. 20, 30 years ago. And this is all happening at about half the level that scientists said uh, we need to, uh, we, we need to uh, limit temperature to. So uh, it's, you know, it, it, in any other circumstance, to see this level of risk and, and to see uh, people on the other side saying, well, I'm a skeptic, I'm not sure, I'm not, oh, I don't, I don't have proof positive that this is going to happen it, it's honestly it's, it's it's madness I mean if you if you think about what people do to ensure their homes from fire mm -hmm. where there's maybe a point point you know point zero you know, something percent chance of that I mean that that's that's what you know that's what uh, is uh, is is what you do in in ordinary non-politicized cases so it this is happening all over, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse no matter what we do. It's just the question is, can we can we keep it at a containable at a containable level, 
which we can if we do this right, and we really can. We really know what to do to contain this, or we can let it get completely out of control. I'm going to stick on that uh, maddening point for a second, because I was really struck by uh, news of a congressional hearing that happened in Washington earlier in May. It was the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Again, the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. And one of the expert witnesses was uh, Dr. Phil Duffy, who is the president and executive director of the Woods Hole Research Center. And uh, some of the uh, members of the House Committee, members of Congress, suggested to Dr. Duffy that uh, sea level rise could be caused by sediment falling into the oceans. Uh, also that Arctic ice is actually increasing uh, and that maybe you know rising temperatures could be a good thing because the earth used to be warmer than it is now. Um, how, do, how do you deal as a citizen with that kind of uh, line of questioning to somebody who is clearly uh, an expert in climatology? Well, <clears throat> look, unfortunately, we have had uh, this form of kind of climate denialism with us for uh, for the last several uh, decades since climate change started to kind of come up on people's in people's consciousness and, and uh, started to be uh, identified as the kind of serious problem it is. Um, it's not responsible. I mean, it, it depends who you're talking about. I think a lot of people just don't know. So if they hear if they hear this kind of uh, kind of uh, these kinds of claims, they're liable to believe them. Um, uh, the people who who are making, who are at, at all trained and are making these claims uh, should know better. I mean, the, the vast majority, I think the number that tends to float around is something like 97% of, uh, of scientists who are uh, knowledgeable in the area understand and, and accept the consensus. You know, there was a, there's a, um, a scientist, I'm going to forget his uh, name now, but um, but uh, from uh, I think Berkeley, who was hired uh, a number of years ago, within the, while I was at State, uh, to do a uh, to do a study uh, meant to debunk climate change, and he was a serious scientist. Uh, he was hired by the Koch brothers, uh, and he did a serious. It's either Stanford or Berkeley um, uh, report over a period of about two years, and then wrote an wrote an op-ed in the in the New York Times saying I started out. Uh, as a skeptic, and we did our research, and we did our study, and this is totally real. This is a serious threat. And we've got to act. And we've got to act to deal with it. So, if you are, if you are not bought and paid for, <laughs> uh, if you're serious about this, then uh, then you then you know uh, it's real. And um, I mean, there's only there's only so much you know you can do about people like this, other than to try to. I guess two things maybe I would say. One is. You have to just keep uh, putting. We, we, we even though the the uh, premise of a fact-based world has been more under assault in the past uh, seventeen months <laughs> uh, than it has been before. Um, we do live in such a world, and uh, and we have to make decisions. Business people make decisions on the basis of facts, or they'd be out of a job. Military uh, leaders make decisions on the basis of facts, or they would also be in serious trouble. We have a science. We have a problem, which is uh, which is a, a manifestation of scientific uh, uh, processes, and we have to look at that 
uh, for what it is. The other thing I would say in terms of sort of how do you deal with this, how do you persuade people, is that if anybody had any doubt about this before, again, the last uh, 17 months or so of, uh, of our political life in America should have taught us, if we didn't know before then, that we... We we all we live in it. We live in in a, in a world which is which is more tribal uh, in its uh, in its makeup than maybe we recognized before. And so I think it's uh, I think who the messenger is in talking to people is every bit as important as what the message is. So you know I could go in. People could send me in to talk to various communities. Uh, of people who uh, who are represented by uh, leaders who 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 try to debunk climate change, and I'm probably not going to be very effective, no matter how accurate uh, I uh, uh, the words that I speak. Very much more important to get people who have who are more trusted and have more credibility within the given community, whatever that community is, and there are people in all of those in all of those communities. Um, who can talk to uh, people there and say, "Listen, um, this actually is a real thing. We we have to stop playing games here, and uh, and we have to try to find reasonable ways to deal with it. Let's just try to get a fact base. It's real. It's happening. It's it's a threat now. It's a threat to you. It's a more of a threat to your kids. It's more of a threat to their kids. So what can we do about it? And then we have can have a debate about which specific actions to take." But let's get past this, you know, this sort of make-believe. It, it just it strikes me as so obvious, the science, the evidence of climate change. Uh, and yet, as you say, still so many people uh, deny it either uh, in their official capacities as, as maybe elected politicians um, or just regular people. And you've uh, suggested, you know, maybe there's, there's money behind the denialism side or there's tribalism. I mean, are the, you think these are the, the explanations for why people continue to resist um, ideas and actions that would mitigate the climate crisis? I, I, I do think that they are significant uh, reasons. There may well be others. I'm not saying they're exclusive, but I think the, um, you know, I think that, that, they're, that they are significant contributors to that that take. I'm going to try to try to um, end on a more hopeful, forward-looking note. Um, you said in the recent speech that you referenced, it was at Yale, uh, and it's on our website, you said that Paris was a beginning and not an end. What do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> I mean that, uh, that Paris, after more than 20 years of trying in one way or another, was the time when the entire world community all 195 countries that are parties to uh, to the UN Climate uh, Agency finally agreed on an operational agreement to carry forward what the, what was that original just sort of framework agreement that set forth sort of broad parameters but didn't really tell anybody to do anything per se in a concrete way. So that was a big, big step uh, and uh, and countries put forward uh, their own targets, uh, initial targets in, in 2015. We knew those weren't enough. We knew those weren't strong enough, but we did know also that they were a start. As I said, Paris is built on, on a sort of cyclical repeating uh, theory uh, that so every five years, 
starting in 2020, countries are supposed to take another look at and hopefully re-up the targets they've put forward. A second uh, five-year cycle, starting in 2023, is an aggregate look. How is the world doing against those targets, the two degrees and so forth targets that, uh, that have been agreed to? So Paris is meant to go on and on and on in a cyclical way for, you know, for well, well out into the future. Uh, it's, a, the, it's a beginning in the sense that this was the first moment when we got an agreement to an operational, uh, uh, an operational uh, way forward. And now we have to do the hard work to keep, uh, to fulfill that, to keep cranking it up uh, on a regular basis and to do the work at the national and subnational and uh, and uh, research lab and company level to create the create and disseminate the um, the clean energy uh, 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 means of carrying our economy forward, as well as various other things that are also important, such as reducing deforestation and and, and other things like that. So Paris was a moment when I think the world, uh, all over the world, from, you know, from universities to boardrooms, civil society, uh, sort of stopped and said, wow, world leaders have agreed we're going to do this. That's a, that's a big start. Now we've got to make good on that and carry it, kind of carry it through going forward. Again, it's by no means an all bad picture now. Uh, it's very positive in all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of uh, aspects of of the United States that we've already discussed and tremendous things, I should say, going on, tremendously positive dynamic going on in terms of clean energy development, dramatically lower prices of wind and solar, dramatic increases in, in, their, um, in their penetration in the economy, and tremendous research going on in all sorts of other related clean, uh, clean tech uh, ways, both here and around the world. Tremendous action going on in China, for example, and, 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 and in, in Europe and other places. So there's a lot that's positive. It is a setback that, uh, that the president, current president of the United States uh, saw fit to say that he wanted to pull out. But uh, it's a setback that we've got to get past. Well, Todd, I want to I want to thank you uh, personally as a citizen uh, for your hard work thus far, and in the future on addressing uh, the global climate problem, and also thank you as the podcast host for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thanks so much, Fred. Appreciate it. You can learn more about Todd Stern and his work with the Cross Brookings Initiative on Energy and Climate on our website at brookings.edu. A special thanks to Mark Holscher for running the audio booth this week. Our audio producer is Gaston Ribeiro. Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna are the producers. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections 5 on 45 and our events podcasts. Email questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.